0: Hello everyone and welcome back to the iProgress podcast episode 12 already and today we're going to be talking about how you manage that transition from your undergraduate degree to your postgraduate degree. So I'm Dr Dean Fido your host and as always I'm joined by my friend and collaborator Craig Harper. Before we jump into talking about that transition if you're listening to this on Spotify or other podcast services, thank you very much for your continued listenership. And if you're watching us on YouTube, make sure to leave a like on the video, subscribe to the channel and comment down below to let us know whether you had any difficulties in that transition from your undergraduate to your postgraduate. And hopefully today we're going to be talking about a few tips and discussion points around why that transition is so pivotal and important and getting you prepared if you are a current undergraduate looking to advance your career into a master's degree so Craig why do we want to talk about this particular concept today what what is so important about this particular period in a student's academic career
1: uh, I think if you if you think about the the jump between undergraduate and postgraduate we see it quite a lot when we're teaching on things like MSc programs that it's quite unexpected to kind of step up um and we'll come on to kind of what those step ups might look like. And I, I'm perhaps less convinced it's a step up in difficulty, I guess, uh, than maybe others people. But it's about how do you manage the change in the mindset, the change in the uh, the types of work that you're expected to do, the types of sessions you're expected to engage with. It's a totally different way of working in education, I think. Um, and quite often that comes at a, a real shock to people. Mm. Um, so trying to think about what people can do maybe to put a plan into place so that that is a little bit easier to navigate is a good thing.
0: Yeah, I, I completely agree. And one of my, because uh, this this is very much kind of one of my suggested topics uh, for the discussion on the podcast. And one of my kind of selfish reasons for wanting us to discuss this is because it's something that I discuss with my students and other early career academics each and every year just to kind of get them in that mindset for that transition. And I also kind of wanted us to make a a small toolkit here that other academics can be sharing with their peers, their collaborators and their students, so that hopefully everybody is on the same uh, wavelength. And if we get any feedback from that, that'll be excellent and we can repackage that into a new YouTube video um, for everybody's consumption. So our first topic of the day is talking about those expectations. I think that when students do move on to a master's course, and particularly those who are almost slightly institutionalized, so what I mean by that is students who stay at their home institution, from their undergraduate degree to their master's degree, they can almost be a little bit caught off guard by the different ways in which these master's degrees are taught. Now, I know this is gonna have variation not only from institution to institution, but also from program to program. And it will be interesting to get some feedback from some of our international listeners um, to see whether what we're talking about today mirrors onto their experiences, which is, you know, it's it's always a, a learning point for us as academics. But when we are talking about expectations, What we try to drill into students is that in your master's degree, there is a lot larger emphasis on independent study. And by that, we mean that lots of the content that's being delivered within the sessions is going to be taught light, perhaps. We're not going to be doing full deep dives on some of the broader, more expansive topics. We're going to be igniting that passion and that inquiry within the students and hoping That they go off and and develop that knowledge themselves. A few podcasts ago, we talked about how um, one of the best ways that that I I like to teach is to make sure that our assignments map on to uh, things that students will be doing within their careers, things that students will be doing within the next stage of their study or career development. And when I'm making those assessments, I write them quite vaguely. So I will always if I'm if I'm teaching forensic psychology I will always be talking about a victim type of my students choosing rather than say I want you to talk about victims of violence or victims of burglary and, and prescribe it in that way what that allows me to do is say to the students this is the framework you go away and choose your focus group. Who do you want to be talking about? Because you can answer that question in multiple different ways, but I want you to show that independent study and that development of ideas. What what, what are your thoughts, Craig, around the expectations?
1: Yeah, I, very similar. Um, I think the, the independent study idea is really interesting because I think we should probably be doing that at undergraduate level as well. Hmm. Um, however, I think it does kind of, take a bit of a step up at postgraduate level. So there's very much a difference in the UK, especially. We have this issue of um, students when they're at school don't get taught how to learn. They get taught what to learn and what they need to learn for an exam. When they get to university, when they're doing their undergraduate degree, needing to do work outside of class to supplement the content Hmm. is almost like a foreign idea to them to some degree. So getting people into the mindset of doing work outside of class is often quite difficult. At postgraduate level, it goes another step further in terms of in class, we're giving you the absolute basics. These are um, the key ideas, the key theories, the key scholars. And what you need to do is to take that base knowledge and and not teach yourself, because that's kind of not a, a thing that we want to be suggesting, but... Making sure that you understand that content through your independent reading, through doing lots of broader uh, literature searching, testing out different ideas in terms of applications, um, and always trying to find what your voice is in this. area. Mm. It's about that independence of thought as well as just doing work outside of class. What is it that you think about a particular area of, st- of study?
0: Yeah. Um, so a, a couple of points on that, just to, just to pick up what you're saying about developing that independent voice, that professional voice. During your master's, that, that's very pertinent, especially if you're looking to go on to a PhD in a, in a particular area. We've spoken on the podcast before about the importance of social media, and I know that um, we're we're kind of writing or or delivering this at a time when um, there's lots of discussion about the future of of Twitter and whether people might be moving away from Twitter. We're still quite large advocates at at the time of recording, but we don't know how things are going to change in the future. Um, And one thing that I always talk about my PhD students with is, yes, there is one way in which you can disseminate that research in terms of publication but actually we need to be making sure that your research is deliverable and disseminated to the general population as well these are the people that are going to benefit the most from your work and so how are you developing that voice how are you taking this knowledge and digesting it and sharing it in a way which is meaningful and powerful and if you start to master that technique during your master's degree, ironically, um, that sets you up in a a really clear position to not only develop that internal professional voice, but become the professional who voices those opinions. And that obviously maps onto um, employability. And the second point to pick up on is I completely agree that we do need to be almost kind of dragging this independent thought back into the undergraduate degree and making it more um, explicit. This can be done in very simple terms. For, for example, um, we talk a lot about theories and frameworks, uh, especially in psychology during the undergraduate degree. And then we can be inviting students to pick a crime type or pick a cognitive model or a, or a situation you know and try it might not work but try and apply that theory and that framework to something that they're interested in because if we are developing a, a future uh, thinker and someone who's going to be powerful in their field you can't just be using old models all the time you need to be testing those models and trying to push through and develop new and novel ideas so so, so that kind of that that encapsulates what we mean by expectations. And a lot of the time, those expectations need to be set right at the start or, or preferably during a student's um, uh, third and final or, or fourth and final year of, of their undergraduate degree, because it allows them that space and time over the summer to start developing those ideas as well as, as when they start in September traditionally. The second element we wanted to talk about is the kind of content and delivery of the sessions within a master's degree. Yes, we do use lectures, workshops, seminars, and sometimes we have outings as, as as well. But in my experience, there's a much larger focus on group discussions and developing those group dynamics. We've spoken a, a lot previously on the importance of, of networking, collaboration and socialization, especially for masters and PhD students, but I really love giving students the the core bones of the ideas and watching them chat with their peers in a structured space. Obviously we encourage that discussion outside of the classroom, but within the classroom, watching those ideas just flourish.
1: Yeah. And I I often think that you can't, you don't think really until you try to, uh, until you try to express what it is that you think about Mm. that particular topic. So it's all well and good a a lecturer stood at the front telling you about a theory you just regurgitating that in the class to show that you've listened maybe Mm. um but until you start to test out different ideas until you start to um formulate an argument to maybe debate with somebody else you don't really know what you do know and what you don't know until you try to test that out
0: Mm. yeah no i i I very much agree i think that Um, from being being a program leader. And when I'm looking at the individuals who we take onto the program, especially in the area of forensic psychology, where we both work, I really like having these debates if we have a lot of students who come from different walks of life, different backgrounds, different home countries, because it it allows me to learn so much from listening to debates that are occurring from completely different viewpoints. Now obviously going back to expectations, we, we set those expectations to be really respectful um, we, we we want it's quite it's quite difficult to articulate, but we want students to challenge each other, but we want that to happen in a really respectful and a safe environment because when we see that, we can see these light bulb moments. We can see these individuals take a step back and say, actually, I never thought about that perspective. And being able to have those very mature discussions is something which we really love to see. And we kind of guess we really wish could happen at at much broader stages of of, of academic career and and earlier on as well. Um, We also have a lot more applied knowledge which is being taught within those sessions. So we kind of do focus on a lot of the theory but the core aim of a master's degree, in my opinion at least, is to get students ready for that next stage of their career path. It gets them to be placed almost instantaneously into their job role or their future career or something that really sparks passion for them. And so when we are having these lectures and these discussions, the focus is moves away from these abstract thoughts and these abstract theories to say, okay, so in a real life setting, how does this knowledge apply? How would you use this? What are the challenges to do that? And what are the barriers? Craig, what's some of your um, experiences from, from students facing this whole shift of ways that they're, they're needing to be taught now?
1: I was, I was just thinking as you were talking there, actually, it's a completely different mindset from what you have at an undergraduate level and i think one thing that we've maybe not discussed is that the fact that a cohort size is much smaller Mm -hmm. at msc level or at masters level compared to an undergraduate level helps us as academics to do this but often makes it a lot more intimidating perhaps for students because you've Mm -hmm. got the idea of it's kind of safety in numbers i guess at undergraduate (laughs) level Um, If you are in a room with 100, 150, 200 students and you don't know the answer to something, chances are most of the people in the room are not going to be forthcoming, even if they do know the answer because of the the fact that you're in a a huge lecture room. Whereas at at master's level, there's almost less opportunity to to hide, maybe. Um, I think it can feel quite exposing. Um, particularly if you are struggling with a particular idea um, to kind of express that and I think that's why we like to use these kind of group-based tasks because what that does is it allows people to learn from each other it Mm -hmm. might be that the way that I've explained something as a lecturer doesn't quite land with a particular student but it has with somebody else so the student might be able to express that in a slightly better way a slightly uh, slightly more kind of context specific way that makes sense for that student that originally struggled. Sure. Um, which I think is why this kind of peer challenge, peer support model at postgraduate level probably works quite well.
0: Yeah. I I, I think I really like that idea. And it's also a kind of a, a word of warning for other academics to be mindful of, of that kind of uh, classroom size shift, because obviously we we see it on a daily basis, but we perhaps don't fully acknowledge the impact that might have on students. For some students, they might completely flourish in that, you know, it gives them a platform to disseminate their their ideas, especially if they're, I don't know, hypothetically a part-time student who's already working in the career and they're looking to upskill. So they're bringing a lot of knowledge for them and it allows them a platform to evidence that knowledge. But also you might have students who, for whatever reason, um, do feel a little bit intimidated by that intimate session and that they know they're going to have to talk. And so almost taking a step back, and I don't have an idea for, for today, um, but it's worth us, us talking about, perhaps in the comments of the YouTube video, um, how we might manage that as academics as well, and how we might put these kind of safeguards in. And I, I just moving on slightly to, to the kind of other elements of content and delivery, which we commonly see, um, definitely in psychology, especially in forensic psychology and clinical psychology, but also perhaps wider areas and topics, is that some of the lecturers that are speaking on a particular day might either be external or they might work for us one day a week or half a day a week um, because we've got them from industry. So they're giving their expertise. These individuals might be really passionate and knowledgeable about a particular subject, but they might not be academics. And I think that's a shift that I definitely experienced um, during my master's program is that I was... A little bit kind of um, unsure about, or may, maybe uneasy, perhaps about the difference in ways I'm being taught by somebody before. They perhaps didn't have the, the the confidence and the nuance as some of the more established lecturers that I was being taught by. But the information that they was delivering was was exceptional. So what I always like to do as a as a kind of a a mentor for these individuals is very quickly up that confidence for them. I like to make sure that they feel as part of the team. I like to make sure that they're fully supported in their delivery. I don't like to be the person that just sits over their shoulder, you know, because that's not gonna help them uh, develop, but try to garner that kind of positive feedback for them and just make sure that they're, they're fully settled in. But what I would say if I was guiding students of how to interact with these external in- individuals is definitely listen to the content that they're delivering but almost let them deliver it and then make the most of the time that you have with them in the kind of question and answer portion, um, just, to, just to really tease apart their ideas, because a lot of your programs, the benefits of those programs are going to be all of this additional information that's coming from these experts. I, I, I actually had some students in the past that, that, that were really engaged, really eager, and they said that they, they did have some questions throughout the lecture, but they just stayed silent because they wanted to maximize the, the amount of time that, that they had. Um, Craig, have you worked with lots of external speakers in the past? How how, how have you felt that they've interacted?
1: Yeah, I, I think it's a really vital part of the masters, um, the masters process. It's it can be quite. Um, I don't even know what the word is as as a as a lecturer who does it full time. Um, to read student evaluations at the end of a course that say it's the best part of this course was the external <laughs> speaker. Um, it kind of, it makes you question whether you're doing something wrong, I guess, but, I, but it's just kind of highlights that, um, that these speakers do bring real value to Definitely. to courses. I, I always say to, to my students, if there's an external speaker, this could be in a future employer for you. Yep. So, make a good impression be keen be uh inquisitive if you've got questions ask them if you've got questions about the content or your career or what it's like to work in the area that they work in ask them yeah because these are the kinds of interactions that people remember and if you go to an interview and they're on the panel or they're the manager that's employing the person then you you've stuck in their mind already so make the most of that time not just from an academic perspective but from a personal and a professional one as well. Hmm. Think about what the kind of downstream effects could be of of really setting a good first impression.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, it's probably a podcast in itself. These first impressions and these unconscious biases—I kind of guess that, that 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 we have with with the conversations that we have with students before. But I, I can definitely take that point that as a future employer being knowledgeable about someone and knowing that they're a passionate person. It just sticks in your mind while you're when you're interviewing them and it can change the complete dynamic of that interview session. So all of that being said, the third topic is, um, we're, we're playing a little bit of devil's advocate here. Um, it was around the question of whether a master's degree should be perceived to be more difficult or not than an undergraduate degree. Craig, do you want to start us off with with your perspective there
1: sure um so i i personally think that in terms of uh the level of qualification obviously it's a higher level of qualification i of caveat everything i'm about to say with that um but i don't personally think that a master's degree should be more difficult than an undergraduate degree the reason that that i think that is that If someone's working well as an undergraduate, then those same skills will help them to work well as a postgraduate. Where the difficulty issue or the perception of difficulty comes in, I think, is that it's a very different way of working, like we've just been talking about. So it's quite easy to turn up as an undergraduate to a big lecture, sit in the lecture, do a couple of readings after the lecture, and to write an essay that is broadly a summary, of what Mm. you've heard in that session. Um, And you might not get top marks for just kind of saying that or doing that, but you can get by pretty well. At master's level, because of the emphasis on more independent thought, finding your voice, making sure that you are uh, interacting more, you're doing more applied stuff, it's, it's a mindset shift rather than a difficulty shift, I think. And but ultimately the people who do well at undergraduate level tend to do well at postgraduate level because they are they're using the same skills that they used at undergraduate level, just in a slightly different context. So in my mind, I don't see master's degrees as being more difficult. They're just different.
0: Yeah, I I I think that's a very persuasive argument. I think I think it's very um Eloquently put, in terms of when when we look at the difficulty, I think we oftentimes or, or students oftentimes sit on the sidelines and, and say, look, it's a it's a it's a higher degree. It must convey that added level of difficulty, but there's lots of those skills and techniques which can ease over that transition, and. Um, that being said, I I I do commonly see sometimes that students might falter a little bit in some of their earlier assessments, and that could be down to the way in which they're still trying to adapt to these new and novel ways of teaching. Largely, the assessment's the same, but the way of looking at that assessment might be completely different, especially for students who might be moving from one institution to another institution. They almost don't have; they have to do two mindset shifts. First of all, in terms of What's expected, but also in terms of well, how do I change and succeed with this particular assessment itself? You know, you might have these kind of institutionalized ways of working which are no longer um, applicable. A university might be looking for a completely different skill set, perhaps. And um, but also we need to be think uh, thinking about and mindful of perhaps some situational variables which might change in postgraduate study. Not only are students typically older. Um, but they might not transition fully straight away from their undergraduate degree. So these might be individuals who have gone to work in the industry sector. They might still be doing that part-time. They might be coming back five, six, seven years later. They now might have families and children and other kind of caring commitments. So when we do talk about the difficulty it might not be the content. It might not be the assessments, but actually it's almost a bit of a juggling act. And it's that situational life context that now you're in a position whereby, well, this is how I used to work. Not only have things moved on drastically since then, but I might be coming from a different institution again, but now I've got to manage my academic time, which I might be doing part-time. So I might be working and so I'll be stressed and tired. And then in the evenings, I've got to look after a child until it goes to bed and then I can focus on some of the work. So that for me is where that difficulty aspect comes in. And that's where we need to reflect as academics to say, okay, so let's get to know our students. Smaller cohorts, like you were saying, vastly help with that. Let's get to know our students. Let's get to know their situations. Can we break down some of these barriers for them? Because any kind of faltering in assessment might not be down to the way in which we're teaching. It might not be down to the way in which the students are able to match that to their attainment and, and their prospects. It might literally be down to the fact that that student is doing the best that they can. And I, I, um, I popped out a tweet earlier in the week, which was essentially saying that when we look at student success, lots of time the focus is on students who are hitting the 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 top drawer in terms of the degrees and the qualifications that they're getting but i think it's definitely time for us to shift that element of what we see as student success in terms of this is the uh, this is what the student expected to do with their degree given the resources that they had but they were able to either reach that or succeed even more they might have a much lower lower uh, grade Range than, than some of their peers, but for them, they've massively excelled, and, and I think that it's it's success stories like that which we need to turn the the focus onto. Because if we do that, it just further breaks down the barriers to entry for university.
1: Sure, I, I think so. So my answer really is is rooted in this idea of when I interview for our MSc courses or for masters courses. A question I get asked a lot is, how hard is it? Hmm. How much more difficult is it than undergraduate? And it's a really difficult question to answer because the content itself shouldn't be that much of a step up. It's just different content. It's slightly more applied, but ultimately if you understand the concepts and you understand them well, then you can do well in terms of applying them. The one thing that I think... That you're kind of alluding to a little bit is around intensity though mm. so a master's degree is typically a year in the uk and um, you can do it part-time over two years but ultimately it's it's one year where you're in university for maybe three days but you've got work to do on the other two days you can't do the same thing that you were doing at undergraduate level where you maybe take a couple of days where you don't do much or you just mm. go into university for your lectures and then try and catch up at the weekend or in the evenings around other things. You, I mean, you can do that, but you're probably not going to succeed that well sure. at an MSc level if you do that. Um, so I think the intensity, having um, parts of the year where you've got deadlines week after week after week after week is different to an undergraduate course where you might have a couple of weeks between each one, where you can say, okay, I'm not going to touch that until – I've got this other one out of the way, but Mm. if you do that at master's level, you're left with four days maybe to do an assessment. So, I think the intensity is a real issue, particularly around uh, students who might have other responsibilities as well, like you've alluded to in terms of childcare or um, caring responsibilities in terms of broader family. They might have other jobs. Um, But I always say to students, it's about thinking through what what is realistic for you to achieve given your current circumstances is it worth you maybe thinking about doing this course part-time rather than full-time it's going to take you an extra year but if it's going to be an extra year to get a distinction grade rather than a pass grade mm. it's probably worth doing um not just in terms of the grade but also in terms of the experience of the course in terms of enjoying the course of not kind of burning yourself out to a point where you're experiencing mental health issues because we do see that in yeah postgraduate level quite a lot because of the intensity of the course and i think that intensity because it puts a lot of stress on people tends to be translated into this course is too hard for me rather than i need to figure out a way of working in the context of this course
0: yeah um i I, I was going to um just kind of draw the podcast to a close but in that in that last point just just to make a final comment on that i think that from my experience when I've seen part-time students come to uh, the, the universities that I've, I've worked at, they do tend to do slightly better than our full-time students. And one of the reasons for that is is potentially twofold. First of all, um, and I'm giving kind of a, a psychological um, course perspective. First of all, if you're doing modules side by side, you're almost submitting two assessments at a time and then getting feedback for both of them, which then you have to you know entwine and do better with next time when you're doing a part time course you're doing your modules perhaps one at a time or 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 less frequently throughout the two two years, and so you're almost getting double the times that you can implement feedback, and so that kind of should help students progress because some of the minor things you'll, you'll be eradicating and you're just focusing on the core elements of development. And the second part is that, again, in, in psychology degrees, but I suspect wider, um, we have a, a, a mainly a dissertation or a research project that we do as, as the final year. And that is, it conveys a lot more of the marks than your other modules. And so being able to see what other students have done in year one, and kind of network with them and learn the do's and don'ts, learn the things that work, learn the things that don't work, that almost sets you in an advanced position for when you come to do your dissertation. And again, if it's conveying more marks, it might actually benefit. So I I think consolidating what I, myself and Craig, have said there, there is value for taking a step back and saying, well, actually, do I want to do this um, degree part-time? Will it benefit me? It might work for some people, it might work, Um, for others very differently. So having said that, I'm going to draw the the podcast to a close. Um, Hopefully that's going to be a useful tool for students, but also some of our early career researching um, and, and academic colleagues to really sit down and have those discussions with your undergraduate students, but also some of your new master's students to make sure they are as prepared as possible for this, perhaps not a step up, but a a diagonal um, step in their future careers. So as always, everybody, if you are listening to the podcast, thank you very much. Make sure to share it with colleagues and friends who will gain benefit for it. And if you are listening on the YouTube channel, make sure to like the video, subscribe to the channel and also leave a comment down below to let us know your experiences of transitioning from undergraduate to postgraduate, especially if you're not from the UK, because Craig and I would love to learn about that portion of our viewership as well. So until next time, we will catch you in the next video.